Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute and today's topic is the gig economy in Indonesia and in particular its impact on the transportation sector. Indonesian officials routinely highlight the success of the Indonesian ride-hailing unicorn company Gojek, whose founder Nadiem Makarim became education minister in President Jokowi's latest cabinet. The green jackets of Gojek's motorcycle taxi drivers and its regional competitor Grab have become ubiquitous in Indonesia's cities. Both companies also offer online taxis, food delivery and a range of other services through their apps. Companies like Gojek and Grab claim to provide a platform to more efficiently bring service providers and customers together, but across the world their critics claim such companies have eroded worker rights and made the nature of work more precarious. But how do these dynamics play out in Indonesia, a country where tens of millions of people have always worked in the informal sector under very adverse conditions? To discuss these issues, I'm joined today by Diatika Widya Pamata Yassi, a PhD candidate at the Asia Institute who has interviewed dozens of Gojek and Grab drivers for her research on the gig economy in Indonesia. Her research will also feature in the inaugural issue of a new publication, Melbourne Asia Review, to be launched next week. More about that at the end of the episode. Tika, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you on the Talking Indonesia podcast. Now, can I start by asking you, how disruptive has the emergence of these online companies, Gojek, Grab and... and you know, at the outset, Uber being in Indonesia to the urban transportation sector? I would say that they disrupt the way the old players do their business. They disrupt the way Ojek drivers do their business and they disrupt the way big taxi companies do their business. So in that way, it disrupt the monopoly of old players in the industry. Okay, could you give us some examples of, of the ways they've disrupted those old players? For Ojek, for instance. So that's motorcycle taxi. Motorcycle taxi, yeah. yeah. We can say that before this app coming, they are mostly work for themselves. It's not that there's no regulation, there's unwritten regulation. For example, it's not easy to be a motorcycle taxi driver. You need to know someone because they cluster in this group and they occupy some spot in parts of the city. So you need to know someone in the group to be able to join the pangkalan, the shelter. Mm. And also, there's also local tak um, preman asking drivers to pay some money to be able to use the specific spot to wait for the passenger. But other than that, they work for themselves. They determine what kind of vehicle they can use. They also, when they set the rate, it's based mostly on the negotiation with the passenger. That's why before the height of this digitized service, the motorcycle taxi service was quite expensive because the driver can just set a really high price because there's not that many drivers around. The passenger, they wouldn't really have the option. 
Okay, so you're saying before Gojek and Grab, motorcycle taxi drivers just kind of hung out on, you know, often on street corners outside big buildings in these Pankalan posts where they're paying local thugs to, to be able to operate there. Now that Gojek and Grab have come in, I mean, what has that meant for drivers? Do we see a loss of autonomy? Are they working longer hours? How has the nature of their work changed? Now the price is determined by the company. And also there's also a requirement for the drivers to follow. There's a uniform. There's also the vehicle. The company set certain rules for the vehicle. There's also a bonus system. So there are certain rules, more formal rules, that the drivers have to follow. Also, this expand the market so more people can actually become a driver. Everyone essentially now can become a, a motorcycle taxi driver as long as you have your own uh, vehicle and uh, phone and um, you just buy the jacket and the helmet. So yeah, everyone can now do the job. So with the company setting the prices and setting the standards drivers need to adhere to, more, say, Jakartans uh, are interested in using motorcycle taxis, so it creates more opportunities for employment. But you mentioned previously, presumably, there were rules set by the members of the various posts that people waited at, rules set by the thugs. Is it sort of much stricter, less pleasant working for a company like Gojek or Grab or how do drivers perceive the entry of these companies to the market? Well, in my interview, whenever I talk to drivers, the first answer they give is this is the best job they could ever have because they would say that they don't like to be bossed around and they see themselves as entrepreneurs. They work for themselves. Also, Lots of people move from being conventional motorcycle taxi driver into the so-called online object driver. But they also say, but if they have other choices, many of them wouldn't want to be a motorcycle taxi driver. They would prefer a job with more stable income. So I think they like the job because this is the probably the best job they could have in a not a very good situation because there's not that many options available for them. And your other question, whether driving for the digitized transportation service is better compared to the old times, they would say it really depends. Like at the beginning, because the ride-hailing apps lure driver with very high rate because it's the time to expand their market. So the income can be really good. But as time goes by, the companies start to reduce the rate for the driver. And also the competitions becomes higher because more drivers uh, joining the market as the market has now expanded. So it's getting difficult to get money. And they need to work long hours to meet ends. So some of them, if asked which one is better, the old times or this one, they would say, well, I actually nowadays, uh, after the promotion ends and now the rate has become lower and the competition is higher, they would say that oh, I, pref- I would prefer to go back to the old times as a conventional motorcycle a taxi driver. 
But the problem is the market is no longer there because now the market for the ride-hailing apps has expanded and no one wants to go to the conventional motorcycle taxi because it's more expensive and the service is less reliable compared to ride-hailing apps. If prior to the entry of you know Gojek and Grab, you had thugs and other members of these posts enforcing the rules for object drivers, you know, presumably sometimes through physical violence or the threat of violence. How are Gojek and Grab enforcing their rules with drivers in Indonesia? One of the big thing about this industry is that they use digital apps to basically manage the work process. So everything is regulated through the apps, meaning that there's less human supervision involved in supervising these drivers. How do the drivers perceive the control that this app exerts on them? Are they comfortable with it? Do they feel it's too restrictive? What what sense did you get from your interviews? Well, some of them think that the control becoming too restrictive because there are some logics that they cannot understand because they cannot directly talk to people and sometimes, many times, they can just easily get suspended for violating the regulations. They sometimes think it's unfair for them. But there's also other who see that, well, it's fair. As long as you work as much as, as you could and you follow the rules, then sure, there's a guarantee that you will able to make it. So I would say half-half. How long are drivers working using these platforms and, and what sort of money are they making in an average month? It really depends. Again, we are talking about times after the companies stop the promotional rates. Some drivers that I know, they can make around 4 million rupiah. So it's $400 working. The typical working hours for some of them is they start to work early in the morning after the morning prayer and then work the whole day and then take a break for two hours and then work again until nine or ten. It's for motorcycle taxi, but for the car drivers, some of them, they can have 10 to 12 million rupiah. So it's like... A thousand, a thousand two hundred dollars. Yeah, but in order to do that, some of them, they need to spend the night on the street, sleeping on the gas station. So some patterns are they spend the night on the street for two or three days, then go home, take a break for one or two days, then go back on the road again. And although the income seems big, we need to remember that they bear the costs of the operational costs of the vehicle themselves. So when uh, there's a vehicle damage or when the gasoline, they need to pay for the cost themselves. And also for some of them, they need still need to pay money to rent the car or to buy the car. So it's not as big as 
uh, we imagine it will be. Okay, so you know, up to around four hundred dollars for motorcycle taxi drivers, maybe a thousand or just over for taxi drivers. But that's not including their running costs at mm. all. So their real income is is much lower. I think it's much lower. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I believe it's much lower. So, I mean, hearing that and the long working hours, even spending the night in your vehicle rather than going home, there's no doubt this is very, very difficult work to do for a modest return. But if we set that against the other informal sector work that a lot of these drivers would presumably be doing in Indonesia if they weren't working for Gojek and Grab, how does it compare? Are these better working conditions than in the informal sector on average or or about the same or, or even not? as favorable as what they could achieve elsewhere. It's hard to compare because the good thing about the services is the entry to the market is really low so everyone can as long as you have vehicle and you have your uh, mobile phone you, you can find a way to earn money and it's really important in Indonesia where many people cannot find stable job. But also for some people they find because they can work so their income will really depends on how much they work uh, so for them it's actually they have opportunities to work harder because if they work harder because there's no time limit so if they work harder they will earn more but there's also a danger in it you don't know how much you can push yourself to work and then you can suddenly collapse. So if I need to make a comparison with other kind of job, because of the level of insecurity, I cannot say that it's a better job. It will push people to maximize their productivity, but for what cost? Sure, sure. But I mean, I guess... One of the criticisms of these companies or similar companies in richer economies has been that they're eroding access to secure jobs with a social safety net and favorable working conditions as an employee. Is their effect on the labor market the same in a country like Indonesia, which has such a large informal sector, or, or is the impact somewhat different in that different economic setting? Um, I would say that the resistance is lower in Indonesia because the informal sector has always been high and we haven't really had an established welfare system. So the resistance for this kind of job might be higher in Western countries where the welfare system is more established and labor union is stronger. In Indonesia, in countries like Indonesia, people need job and they, they will take whatever job is available. Security, stability has never become the issues for many Indonesians. So I would say, yeah, the resistance is lower in Indonesia. Okay, but the problems still remain. But the problem still remains, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you say resistance is lower. Has there been resistance at all from drivers. I mean, Indonesia does have trade unions, albeit very fragmented. Have we seen unionization or, or other organization from drivers? Uh, actually, yes. Drivers have tried to resist individually and as a collective. Individually, these drivers, they have developed various tactics to manipulate the system 
to use it for their own benefit. So, for instance, some of them develop software that they use to manipulate the system. So they can use the software to make it as if as they are close to a passenger while they are not. By doing this, they can easily get passengers. Of course, the company also tried different ways to curb this kind of violation because it costs them money. And also, it's the individual kind of resistance and also some of them they try to form collectives and then they stage demonstration protests to demand for better working conditions to the company and the state. Presumably you know they're manipulating that system because they feel they're not getting enough rides they're not making enough money are those the sort of issues that when there have been protests of drivers that those protests are organized around as well? Yes, many issues that occur in the protests have been related to rates. They want to get raise in rates and also incentive mechanism. They think it's unfair and some of them, they think like they really cannot guess the rule of the games. Mm. Uh, and also drivers have been protested over suspension because they feel like the company can just easily suspend them and they don't really have the rights to appeal when they get suspended. But also there's been more advanced demand, like they want regulations to better protect their rights. And I mean, who is formulating those demands? Do the drivers have their own associations? Are they working with established trade unions? Or how, how does that work? Uh, well, many drivers, they join the associations. The large majorities, they are quite independent from trade union or other NGOs, but there are also some connected to union. One of the major unions that have had has been successful in mobilizing these drivers is the Aerospace and Transportation Division of the Indonesian Metal Workers Federation. And also, there's also NGOs that work with the ur- urban poor who also try to provide support to this driver self-attempt to organize themselves. Although I would say that still, the majority of the associations are re- relatively independent from the influence of union and NGOs. And is it possible to say... 10% or 90% of drivers are in these associations? How widespread are they? It's hard to tell because this is not a organization with a... Well, they use apps like WhatsApp and Facebook to connect to each other. So in that sense, lo- loyalty to organization can be a problem. Mm-hmm. And also the kind of job that they do uh, make it difficult for them to be a loyal member of something because they really rely on themselves to earn money so joining organization and to use their time to organize Mm. it will cost them their time they can use to work that's first thing and another thing their status now is not employee of the company they are partner so it's really easy for them to get suspended so many of them they fear that if they join protests or demonstration they will just easily get suspended and because 
there's no way to appeal, it's difficult for them to join this organization. Okay, I mean, how you, obviously they sound quite fluid. These organizations. I mean, if you were part of a union, you would expect to pay membership dues. Do people pay any money to be part of them, or is it more like just being a member of a WhatsApp group, as you say? How how would you describe them? They pay money. So other other than association that facilitate drivers to demand for better ride at the workplace, there's also communities, smaller communities, informal communities. This kind of communities help the drivers to deal with their insecure jobs. So they function like a kind of risk pool group uh, where drivers can contribute money and the money will be used to support each other in a time of need. These kind of communities are more widespread, uh, so more drivers join this kind of community because it helps them to deal with the day-to-day insecurity. So this kind of community is more popular to driver than the associations or union um, that enable them to demand for better rights to the company. In many countries, the complaint of established players has been that they're subject to regulation on the sorts of benefits they need to pay to their drivers, the fees they need to pay to the government for licenses and the like. Have we seen resistance from established transport players in Indonesia to the operation of of Gojek and Grab? The biggest resistance came from Organda, Organization of uh, Land transportation owner. They're the one who push for regulation to halt the expansion of these services. They ask for the government to apply stricter rules yeah, for the apps. So Organda would be representing what taxi companies, bus companies yeah, and exactly. other minivans and mm. the like. What sort of restrictions have they asked for on, on these apps? So for the taxi, they mm-hmm. ask the apps to comply to regulations that also regulate this conventional public transportation. So, so like permit and yeah, mostly about permit, permit of operating the vehicle. And how has the government responded to those sort of calls? The government finally rectified the ministry regulation last year. While the, the regulation was pushed by Organda, but then ride-hailing drivers, the taxi drivers, also push some of their demand in that regulation. So they kind of use the regulations to also try to ask for something that will better protect their rights. Okay, so what changes did this ministerial regulation issued last year make to the way that Gojek and Grab could operate? From the associations, at least for them, there's acknowledgement that this service is a legal service because without being acknowledged as a legal service, they got challenged from conventional public transportation drivers. So we've heard a lot of reports about drivers of this app, right-hailing apps, got into fight 
being attacked by public transportation drivers, the conventional one, on the street because of the competition. But now, because they think that, especially for the car, right, hailing service, because now they feel like they're acknowledged as legal, they feel like they have better protection. That's one thing. For the motorcycle, taxi, and for both of the services, there are change in the rate, although it's not as high as what the drivers have demanded. So there's the rate that customers pay or the rate that the company pays drivers or, or both? The rate that customers pay and then the rate that company pay to drivers. Okay, because I mean, I guess it's always been a question for me. The Indonesian government has been so positive about Gojek. It's something, a, a company that it often highlights, the president often highlights in international forums. As I mentioned, they've made the founder, the education minister. I mean, does that lead to a stance from the government of being very pro these companies in the way that it formulates regulations or, or is it more complicated than that? I think they will definitely more pro, the government will be more pro to companies. There will be space for drivers to be heard by the government, but there's a limit for that. So if the governments actually say yes to the drivers, it won't be at the expense of the companies. So for example, the rate, it won't be as high as what the drivers have demanded because the companies need to maintain the competition between them. And if the rate is high, they will lose the competitive advantage. And for regulations, I don't think regulations will address something more substantial like partnership agreement that will challenge their core of business. So yeah, I think if there's a chance for drivers to be here, it won't, again, it won't be at the expense of the companies. Yeah. I mean, what about between established transport providers like Bluebird and the like who Traditionally in Indonesia, you've had to be extremely well connected to gain taxi licenses, uh, often with perhaps connections to the military or, or high officials. How does their clout compare with the government to companies like uh, Gojek and Grab? After the apps came, it's obvious that they disrupt the monopolies of these big companies. That's why... Organda step in to push for um, regulation. But it seems like the expansion of the new economy is unstoppable. So what happened was the big transportation start to think for a more strategic way to in this kind of situation. So what they did was they start to have a partnership with the app. So for instance, now with Bluebird, you can use Gojek apps to look for Bluebird taxi. So I think they realize that even with the connection, they cannot compete with this new business model. So what they did was try to be part of it. Sure, sure. You can't uh, hold back the tide of the the economy and technology, I, mm. I suppose. I, I guess with the government response, are there aspects of the way Gojek and Grab operate that the Indonesian government is uncomfortable with or unhappy with, or is their response overwhelmingly positive? 
I would, yeah, I would say that the response is mostly positive. There's an issue that the status of the companies, are they technology or uh, transportation companies? Because there will be different rules, different regulation, different taxation system for this They are now technology company, but if they are considered as transportation companies, they will need to follow to other rules. But I don't see the issues being raised that much. Is there any concern from the government regarding, you know, you mentioned these companies have made work more precarious. Is that an issue that registers with the Indonesian government? Uh, I don't see it as uh, issues being raised. As far as I know, the government keep praising the apps for creating new jobs, um, reducing unemployment rate, and also providing alternative for public transportation. So it catered the demand of the populace, the middle class. Okay, so everything points to the role of Gojek and Grab increasing in the Indonesian urban context in in the coming years. Yeah, and it's also seemed that the the government pr- oh adding to that the government praised these apps for the big investment that came to them. So it's good for the economy. And I mean, if Gojek and Grab and and similar companies are going to become larger players in Indonesia, the gig economy is going to expand. What does that tell us about the future of work in Indonesia, the sorts of jobs that are going to be available to, you know, we often hear talk of a demographic dividend in Indonesia, a lot of workforce age people sort of coming into the economy. What is the future going to hold for them? The future is bleak for me. Seems like in Indonesia, the focus has been on um, job creation, but I think little has been said or done to address issues related with insecurity. So the rise of this economy contribute to further normalization of precarious work. It has always been seen as normal in Indonesia, but this new model, it offer a, even a better package. The use of technology, the idea of professionalizing these informal motorcycle taxi drivers. They sound really fancy and professional, but it hides the fact that these jobs are insecure and also the fact that people choose the job because there's no other option is available. At the same time, these people who entered the job, they have higher aspiration of what they want to be, of what they could be. But the job itself doesn't really provide the access to achieve what they want. Social mobility, a better life, a stable life where you can save to buy house, where you can save for your kids' education or better career. Sure, sure. Now, Tika, there's a lot more I could ask you, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia today to share your insights. It's been great. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, thank you. That was Dietika Widya Pamata Yassi, PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. As I mentioned at the outset, 
Tika's research will feature in the inaugural edition of Melbourne Asia Review, a new online research publication being launched by the Asia Institute next week. Please do check it out. We'll post the URL in the episode notes. Talking Indonesia returns on 26 March with my co-host Dr Gemma Purdy. Until then, as always, you can access the entire archive of episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.